0: Chapter 3 of Seeing Darkly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by the Reverend John Sparhawk Jones. Chapter 3 The Unprofitable Servant. Quote. But which of you, having a servant ploughing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he is come from the field, Go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do." Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Had Christ thrown out this parable avowedly against the doctrine that the end of man is happiness, and that this was the purpose in his creation, he could not have hit his mark more accurately. There is such a doctrine, and it is wildly prevalent, that God, as a being of infinite love, has only one motive or principle of action, which is the production of happiness. Men differ as to the meaning of life, that is, what it was given for, why it was bestowed. The problem of existence is one of the ultimate insoluble problems, and the most comprehensive of all, and will always receive different interpretations, so long as man continues in his present state of ignorance and doubt. There are those, and perhaps they compose the majority, who believe that God, having brought man hither without the assent of his will, is morally bound to take care of him, to provide for him, to support him, and even more than that, to make him positively happy, to give him what is called a good time, and make his life on earth a success from a material point of view by supplying him with creature comforts and conveniences. Seeing that this is notoriously not the fact, and that man, on the average, is not supremely happy, does not get what he strives after, is constantly balked and frustrated, and is a creature of great expectations and small results, Many, perceiving this painful fact, have taken refuge in the alternative that either God is not infinitely powerful, or, if so, not infinitely benevolent. Starting out with this bold postulate that a perfectly benevolent creator must, of necessity, desire first of all the happiness of his creatures, many have been driven to the conclusion that God is not really omnipotent, that he is handicapped and obstructed by the materials in which he works and by the exigencies and inevitabilities of the case. The logic of the situation compels them to sacrifice his practical omnipotence, and to say that he cannot do what he would like to do, what it is the free, spontaneous instinct of his gracious nature to do. Whatever be true or false in this doctrine, it is clear that Christ, in this illustration, takes no account of it, does not recognize it at all as a solution of the problem, but takes an entirely different line and expounds both God and man under different relations and upon another principle. Indeed, as a rule, Christ is not philosophical or analytic, does not go deeply into the reasons and roots of things, or defend the divine moral government from the objections and aspersions of men. Rather does he fall back upon his native authority, his moral intuitions, his sense of reality, and, instead of arguing, announces, states the fact as he sees it to be. This is a characteristic trait of Christ's discourse. He is direct, dogmatic, and final in his method of handling metaphysical and religious questions. Take, as example, the present context. Here the whole perplexed problem of man living on the earth, man and his world, is suddenly opened up. Why is he here? What is the purpose of his existence? How does he stand related to God, his maker? How should he feel toward God? what is man's proper posture in relation to god evidently it is an immense question we recognize it as once as one of the old grey eternal questions old as nature old as the human heart this is a stone of sisyphus that generations have rolled in front of them and found no landing place for it one man one school says god is morally bound to nourish protect and eventually save all his rational creatures from damage and destruction Others say, no, this one does not plainly appear, save upon certain moral conditions with which the creature must freely comply. So the battle roars and thunders and volleys between opposing camps. It is an age-long controversy, an outstanding question. What is the end and meaning of life? What are we here for? Does God owe anything to us, or do we owe anything to Him? Does man fulfill life and exhaust its significance by enjoying himself? by helping himself, by satisfying his appetites and ambitions, and carving out his own fortune in his own way? Or is there more involved in life than that? Is it a scene of moral issues? Is it an opportunity to discharge a debt man owes to divine laws and to God as the source and sum of them? Observe, then, that this is really a serious question, not a surface question, but one that is implicated with the whole action and conduct of human life. In brief, it is a question of who shall be first, man or God. Undoubtedly, the whole tendency of human nature is to make man the standard or unit from which calculations shall be made. For if anything falls into the life of the average man which he does not like, which crosses his plan or thwarts his wish or interferes with his convenience or disappoints his hope, directly he is prone to impeach the divine providence if, indeed, he believe in a God as harsh, inconsiderate, even unjust. In other words, our native instinct is to measure and graduate all events and happenings, good fortune and ill fortune, by reference to our own personal preference, to our conception of what would serve our private interest. But evidently this is not the doctrine of Jesus in the parable. Rather does he teach that, totally irrespective of our own selfish gratification and supposed welfare, We are to appeal all questions to a higher tribunal, the will of God, and to decide and act, in every case, agreeably to those ends and aims which are of his very nature. Anyone may see, then, that this teaching of Christ is of the most thorough and radical sort, and calculated to revolutionize his whole plan of life. Because the average human being asks first, what do I want? What will suit and serve me? What is my interest? What is expedient? Whereas the right question for him is something quite other than this, and he should rather inquire, what is my duty? What is the divine requirement of one in my circumstances? But let us look more closely into this teaching. Obviously, it contains two leading ideas. One, that man's chief business here is to work, that is, to do righteousness, to fulfill moral obligation, to accomplish the will of God as revealed to him. The other idea is that, having done this, he should wait patiently for the reward and recognition of his toil. But our first and clear duty is work and obedience, loyalty to truth, to the right and the good, and this without any outlook upon ulterior gain or advantage. Quote, which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat? This is the homely imagery under which Christ sets forth the prime truth that man is and ought, first of all, to be a doer of duty. It is impossible to overstate the importance of the principle here laid down, that our part in this world is primarily the part of a servant, whose function is exhausted in doing promptly, faithfully, thoroughly what he is told to do. Man is not set down on this planet to be a judge of it, to be a critic or censor of it, either of its natural laws and processes, and its adaptations as a scene of sentient and rational life, or as a platform of providential purpose and of moral probation, although the speculative intellect leads in this direction. Like the Castilian monarch of whom history makes mention, one imagines that he could have built a better world and one more suited to be the habitation and home of man, but this is not really the question. It does not become men to sit magisterially and judiciously upon the earth and time as the scene and sphere of their choices and activities. The parable settles this decisively. Man is under authority. He is under orders. He is properly at the beck and call of another. He is not the master of his own time. He is at service. He is a hireling. He has to give account of himself. This is the Christian idea. He may be a philosopher, naturalist, geologist, biologist, thinker, or practical man of affairs, but whatever he be, this is a secondary role, a species under a larger genus. Primarily and chiefly, he is here to obey, to fulfill and complete the great moral ends indicated in his structure and capabilities. The divine commandments, the fashioning of the will, the perfection of his nature, the glory of God, this is man's chief end. For this cause came he into the world. All this is foreshadowed in the text under the image of a servant plowing and feeding cattle in the field. You see the type of Christ's theology. He makes the divine law, the moral imperative, supreme and final. There is no hint here of the dignity and divinity of human nature in any such sense as lifts it above the necessity of consulting a higher law than its own caprice or natural preference. The parable does not glorify or canonize man or in any wise exalt him it calls him a servant implying that he has responsibilities is strictly accountable and must report at sunset the work of the day thus by this neat little illustration christ cuts away from under human feet the whole ground of merit of superfluous extraordinary merit as though men could acquit themselves in such a grand, successful style as to lay God under obligation, so to speak, to make him debtor and mankind his creditor. There is nothing of this in the doctrine of Christ. Quote, did he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. Unquote. For what was the servant there if not to wait and to serve? Mark how absolutely Christ abolishes the very possibility of men acting in such a way as to surprise God, or lay him under contribution, or make him debtor to their fidelity or generosity or painstaking care. Yet this is not the common notion. Human nature is constantly be praised and bestrewn with flowers, and incensed with applause on account of some act that overpasses, by a little, the average experience and action of men. We cry out, Noble! Noble! grand, heroic, splendid over some deed of courage or benevolence or self-sacrifice that startles a community with a shock of grateful surprise, as though something had happened that ought to be published in other worlds, and nailed upon the outposts of creation to attract the gaze of angels. Thus, a person of large wealth makes a creditable contribution to a good and needy cause, and straightway the fact is blazoned abroad as a princely generosity, a munificent gift. But what is it? Has he touched his capital? No, indeed. Has he impaired his income? Not a bit. He is too shrewd for that. He has only given a thin slice and paring of his superabounding wealth to a hard-bested and struggling cause. That is the whole of his service. He has simply done his duty. Strictly considered, he deserves no praise, and if he be a good man, he knows it. He considers himself an unprofitable servant, has only done what it was his duty to do. Or, on a wild night, in mid-Atlantic, the sea boiling like a pot, the wind blowing like blasts of doom, a laboring, disabled vessel, in danger of being engulfed, sights and signals another of its distress. The captain of the stanch craft heaves to and lies beside it all night, and in the gray of morning takes off the imperiled and affrighted passengers. The deed is wired over the civilized world as one of magnificent daring and moral heroism. But what else should he have done? At bottom, was there really any great merit in not leaving those people to perish in the hungry sea? He simply did what it was his duty to do. Or take the case of a young man, the only son of his mother, and she a widow. He is her rod and staff. He lives to support her. He works to supply her wants. He denies himself much in the way of pleasure and diversion in order to be her companion, and to make her declining years comfortable and happy. Indeed, he has become proverbially famous in his community for filial piety and fidelity. People quote him, cite his example, hold him up as an ideal of imitation, dilate upon his virtues and his grand singularity among the mass of young men, who are either a heaviness to their parents, or else of neutral, indifferent tint. Yet, after all, what has this hypothetical youth done which entitles him to such high encomiums? Has he done more than his duty? Who should take charge of his desolate, bereaved, and lonely parent, if not he? All that he has really accomplished is the observance of the fifth commandment, to a degree of completeness, unusual, exceptional. Carefully considered, he has done no more than discharge a simple, natural obligation, and one that would be recognized by an unsophisticated conscience. Or, suppose the case of a physician, living in a community overtaken by a devastating epidemic. They who are alive and reasonably well have fled and are fleeing the infected town, for fear black death catch and prostrate them. But meanwhile the good and faithful physician stands at his post, keeps cool, calm, and clean, observes every hygienic precaution, goes about his business, administering with skill and judgment to the symptoms of the fever-stricken, the doomed and dying, until little by little, and day by day, the disease shows signs of waning, and its cruel grip relaxes. What shall we say of this brave man? Has he laid up a fund of extraordinary merit? Has he incurred great risk? Has he stayed in a poisoned, putrid air, plying his profession against momentous odds, and without calculation of self-interest? He has certainly been faithful when perhaps many would have been recreant or derelict. But, on the other hand, what is the business of a physician if not to attend the sick? Did he receive his diploma merely to medicate a certain class of trivial ills, Was it clearly understood that he should have liberty to abandon the community in case he saw it to be expedient? Looking at the situation closely, did this good man achieve more than his duty by remaining among his people and putting his medical knowledge, experience, and skill at their disposal? The fact is that in all such instances, the reason why men are belauded and held up for admiration as exceptional individuals of rare virtue, courage, fidelity is because they are truly exceptions to the general rule. It is not because they have actually done more and better than they ought to do, but rather because they have surpassed the ability and achievement of average human nature. For, in truth, we do not expect much from ordinary human nature. Any one who has lived long has discovered that he cannot rely confidently upon it. It is shifty, selfish, calculating, timid, mean, ungenerous, deceitful, not large open noble ingenuous and true this is a simple fact which every one has occasion to verify on his passage through the world and when one here and another there and a third yonder transcends the ordinary level and rises unto grand achievement and does a truly great and noble deed above the compass and range of average humanity thus betokening a royal soul the spectacle is so unusual so phenomenal that it jostles us into exclamations of surprise, into shouts of applause. Men are not used to it. They do not see such sights every day. They do not live among saints and heroes and philanthropists and patriots, but among common clay, men and women of human passions, frailties and faults, whose whole life is pitched on a low key and actuated by selfish and sinister motives. It is the force of contrast that evokes our admiration, it is the element of novelty and surprise that arrests attention and makes the world cry out over some act of courage, self-denial, fortitude, Bravo! Yuzha! Yeah. Well done, good and faithful servant! In all such cases the individual has nowise exceeded his duty and moral obligation, has not done more than a vital conscience and the moral law enjoin, nor put God in debt to him. And the only reason why his public heap praises and rosebuds and compliments upon him, or rend the air with cheers, is that they have found, at last, something that looks like a man, one who has nobility, breadth, elevation, a trace of royal majesty, and one or two qualities they are accustomed to think of as ideal and really worshipful. It is the comparative rarity and extraordinary character of the phenomenon that startles and arouses and makes us enthusiastic. Let us rid our minds of the notion that we can exceed our duty, that we can be truer, more faithful, more conscientious, more loyal to divine commandments than God requires. A certain young Jewish nobleman imagined that he was the pure gold of moral rectitude and ventured, on one occasion, to apprise Jesus of the fact. But it appeared in the sequel, and as the result of cross-examination, that his extravagant claim was disallowed, and that he had not even suspected the spiritual nature and latent implications of the moral law. God does not owe you a farthing of compensation. No man can go to God and say, Pay me what thou owest. He has no case. He has no claim. He has not worked overtime. He has done no more and no better than he should have done, and than could reasonably be expected of him in his circumstances. Mark this well. It is a doctrine men need to hear and heed. The best you can do, your masterpiece in that line, your highest strain of moral effort, is no more than God requires, hopes for, sets up ahead of you as the goal toward which you should run. Let us seize this sublime idea of duty, our whole duty, as the very least that can be required. God can ask no less of any moral being than that he should discharge his plain duty. All boasting is excluded. When you have done all, when you have fulfilled all righteousness, you have only done what you ought to do. This is the clear teaching of Christ in the parable. He cuts away beneath our feet all ground of pride and self-gratulation. No man, howsoever laborious, dutiful, conscientious, and faithful to the letter of the commandments, has really enriched God, augmented his resources, revenue, happiness, howsoever wisely he has invested his talent and whatever increment of value has accrued on this account this has not materially increased the power and glory of god man at the best is an unprofitable servant this is the sentence of christ and the best most useful men and women in the world affirm this decree and perceive it to be true the noblest and worthiest specimens of our species are the humblest plume themselves upon nothing they have done declare themselves to have been simply instruments in the almighty hand, take no credit, and assume no superiority. A strange paradox it is, that the more one accomplishes that is really worth doing, the less it appears to him to be, and the more there seems yet remaining to be done. Thus it comes to pass that when persons of active and powerful talent, who have wrought mightily and beneficently in their time, pass away, they count themselves, for the most part, to have been a failure and their life a disappointment, comparatively abortive and fruitless, because they contrast what they have had a hand in and have actually achieved with the immensity, the continental reach, and magnitude of what yet remains untouched and unattempted. So they seem to themselves to be like coral insects, building atom by atom, poor little ephemeral creatures that add in their short day but an infinitesimal item and microscopic speck to the slowly rising pile. Yes, the men and women of energy, of insight, of fertility, of execution, the thinkers, the workers, who really add to the world's intellectual and moral wealth, will be the first to admit that after all they are unprofitable servants. These are they who are clothed with humility, and who ascribe all they are and have to the permission of God. There is another idea contained in the context, and that is the necessity of waiting. It appears that when the servant of the proprietor returned from the field, instead of immediately eating supper, he was bidden to postpone that function until the lord of the estate had first satisfied himself, after which he, in his turn, should partake. Under cover of this familiar figure, Christ clearly teaches that man's part in relation to God is not only to serve, to do the will and work of God in the world, but more than that, Not to expect recognition and reward straight away and publicly as a matter of course and a matter of right. Patient waiting. This is also a lesson of the parable. And probably it is harder for human nature to wait than to work. There is a certain exhilaration about working, getting things done, attaining what one had set out to accomplish and seeing it actually finished and standing a completed whole. There is a joy in this oft-times which one does not find in the patience of hope, in quiet waiting for a longed-for consummation. Taking man as he is made, a restless, hungry, ambitious, discontented creature, full of clamors and cravings and unsatisfied desires, waiting for a desideratum is about the hardest thing he can be set to do. Hence it comes to pass that patience is one of the regal qualities of the soul. Patience is truly great to endure, to wait upon a deferred hope, to stand still until the salvation comes. This is a business that calls for a sublime faith, for grit and steadiness and composure and a brave spirit. It was this splendid quality that made William of Orange and Washington historic names, and has lifted them into the pantheon of departed and deathless heroes, because among other traits they possessed this Olympian serenity of soul, this power of holding on by a forlorn hope, which yet was to them a virtuality, a sure divination and presentiment of eventual victory. No one can be really great without patience. You must know how to wait, how to accept defeat gracefully, how to bow to the inevitable fact in sure hope of a better and blessed future. To wait in a world constituted as this is quite as important as to work. Indeed, they are probably numerically more, by far, who can work industriously and diligently than can wait contentedly and quietly. Man is hasty, eager, impulsive. He will compress results. He will sup immediately upon coming from the field. He must have his wages promptly. His money is due as soon as his servants is rendered. This is his rule. But it is not God's law in the kingdom of providence. Quite otherwise... For, if history and human experience, collectively considered, carry any lesson, it is just this, that the pay, the hard cash, does not come directly upon the completion of the work. All experience confirms this conclusion, that the world is not a scene of exact adjustments and fair compensations. Ask the martyrs, the witnesses for any great imperiled truth, the patriots, the workers in any field of high enterprise, the inventors, the discoverers, the heroic men and women who have sacrificed themselves and their all, in some great interest, whether they received an offset and material consideration for all their toil, pain, anxiety, and mortification, and they will say, no, not in coin, not in gold, not in houses and lands and fine raiment and chariots, not in praise and pudding, but in the answer of a good conscience, in a consciousness of rectitude, and in the blessed hope of ultimate reward in a day of righteous judgment." Nothing is more notorious than that the servants of God do not get paid promptly in this world. The world is not built that way. It is rather built upon the principle announced in the text, quote, Gird thyself and serve me, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink, unquote. But this does not suit the taste of most men. They want to sup now, when things are savory and smoking. And by consequence, it turns out that seeing they cannot do this, but are obliged to wait, many wax weary and fall into ill humor and fret at inequalities of divine providence, and the hard logic of events, and the mystery of God's ways with men, who, in place of dealing out microscopic justice here and now, often leave them in the lurch, in suspense, in darkness, in humiliation. This is, at bottom, The reason why you will often see those who a while since were shouting lustily for what they called an eternal principle suddenly weaken and grow limp and strangely quiet the fact is they were there for what could be made out of it they wanted pelf power place patronage the spoils and discovering after due trial that these were not available not ready to be dispensed their ardor cooled they became offended and withdrew it did not suit them to wait they had not the right grit they were not true metal they did not ring true their motive was cankered at the root the world abounds in that type of character not principled not ingenuous not whole not pure gold but contrariwise, the supreme dynamic with such is palpable profit some prospective benefit or personal promotion or mercenary advantage upon which they have set their cold keen eye and which if it does not shortly fall into their lap their immense enthusiasm for moral ideas, truth, righteousness, education, justice, or what not suddenly collapses and falls flat. These servants cannot wait. They must sup at once. How true to human life is Christ's parable! This thing of waiting takes up pretty much all our time. Yet we can do anything better than that. In fact, we have to wait for everything that has substantive value and intrinsic worth. The best wine, comes last. The faculty for waiting is the one most in demand at present. He who can wait longest, most patiently, cheerfully, hopefully, holds the winning card in life's subtle game. He is apt to get what he wants, or if not, he sees the triumph from afar, and rejoices that the prize will fall yet later to others who are working on the same lines, and to the same great end. Verily, this is the virtue required of all of us. And the test that best searches out and settles one's faith in any principle, doctrine, or policy is this. How long is he willing to work and wait, unrewarded, uncheered by success, yea, reviled, persecuted, in a forlorn minority, yet baiting no jot of heart or hope? This is the probe that searches deep, and we cannot stand it. We wince and weaken. Oh, we can bawl out glittering platitudes upon public platforms. We can carry the banner in the van amid throbbing drums and a tempest of cheers. We can vote with the majority. We can publish our opinions when it costs nothing, when it is perfectly safe and quite popular. But to return from the field after a day's plowing and feeding cattle, and then gird one's self to wait this is a thing of different complexion. This goes to the root of the matter. This declares a man, identifies him, shows him up, and ascertains whether he be a dishonest windbag and canting hypocrite, mouthing a histrionic part for appearance, a poor false creature covered with electroplating to disguise the base elements in him, or a true man with a vitalized conscience, a courageous columnar champion of a truth he holds dear and is ready to work for, waiting for its coming in great power and glory, yea, even to die for it. Learn a lesson from Christ's parable of the waiting servant. You must not expect much in your day. It does not belong to you to decide upon the date for any great change. It is not for us to know his times and seasons, whose way is in the deep and who makes the clouds his chariot, or how long it will take the historic drama of our planet to work itself out. The eternal processes of God's kingdom are slow and secular. They lapse leisurely. The stars burn and burn out. The moons wax and wane the great ages roll onward, but still God's purpose tarries, gets himself incarnated in this or that form or institution, and then shatters it as a shackle and impediment and unfit for its use, and migrates into some other shape. The whole web of human history being interpreted means simply man waiting upon God, plowing and feeding cattle and waiting to sup, waiting for fruition, for rest, for victory, for heaven, For the kingdom of God in some authentic sense. This is our vocation. It is ours to plow, to weed, to sow, to put in the spade and the pick, to tug and toil and groan and sweat, meanwhile not expecting great things, not counting upon ripe results in our time, not calculating by the rules of our human arithmetic the value of our service or the amount of our compensation, but leaving all that to the master of the estate. And whosoever does this out of a true and honest heart, and with carefulness and fidelity, with him Jesus says that by and by he shall sit down and sup. The good and faithful servant shall partake of God's supper. He shall be satisfied. He shall be filled. Oh, the magnanimity and mercy of God! Not that men can do anything to augment the wealth and splendor of the divine nature or make God happier, for the best are inefficient and unprofitable. But notwithstanding your defects and limitations, O oh laborer, O oh sufferer, O oh martyr, O oh witness for an essential and despised truth, you shall sup by and by. If only you have been, quote, faithful in a few things, you shall be made ruler over many things, unquote. Gird yourself and wait, for after you have served, you shall sup. After you have suffered, you shall reign. End chapter 3